Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of Talks Talk. I'm Matt Zuckerman, fellow at the UMass Division of Toxicology at the Department of Emergency Medicine at UMass Worcester. On this episode today, we have uh, an exciting segment uh, myself and my co-fellows just returned from a national conference in Las Vegas, and we just wanted to uh, give you a sense for what it was like, what we saw, what we liked and didn't like. Just a reminder, you can uh, listen to the Talks Talk podcast via the iTunes store or via the website. That's www.talkstalk.org. You can also email us at talkstalk at talkstalk.org. And without further ado, here's a segment on NACCT. Welcome to another exciting segment here on Talks Talk. Actually, I'm very excited about this uh, particular segment because it has my two co-fellows, my two junior fellows, as I am the senior fellow. I'm Matt Zuckerman, the senior fellow at the UMass Division of Toxicology, and with me today are... Jennifer Carey. And Mark Nevin. Very good. All right. Why don't you tell the folks at home where you're coming from? Uh, I am, as Matt said, a junior fellow here at UMass, and I just finished my emergency medicine residency down at Brown in Providence. And I took kind of a circuitous route to get here. I, I finished training a few years ago at Drexel, um, formerly MCP Hahnemann down in Philly, and then I went up to Detroit to practice at uh, St. John, and three years later, here I am. And how does Worcester compare with Detroit? A few less stabbings, but otherwise pretty similar. That's good. Very good. All right. Um, and we are all, um, I wish you could say we all tan after coming back from Las Vegas, but, but I don't, I don't think any of us are tan. Um, we all stare at our skin now comparing it to the white sheets of paper next to us. But, um, so we were just in Las Vegas for, um, NACCT the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology, which makes it sound like some sort of peace accord, I feel like. And that you guys, this is your first conference, right? Yes. Yeah, it was my first conference. I thought it was pretty cool, actually, getting to see all the famous toxicologists out there putting a face to the names and everything. It was fun. Although five days in Vegas is three too many days in Vegas, I think. <laughs> Gambling booze, you know. Yeah. I am up a hundred bucks, which is nice. But he didn't even gamble. Don't don't ask him. <laughs> yeah. Don't ask me how I got the hundred bucks. But. But yeah. No. Uh, yeah. It was it was fun, but I agree with you. It can be lengthy, and they schedule it really long. I mean, it's it starts seven thirty a.m. and it runs through the day, and then in the evening there's you know the the networking events. But I really had a good time. So day one, uh, let's see, because it was in Las Vegas, they picked um, Vanity and Vice. So um, so it was Vanity and Vice, and they talked about silicone breast implants and the toxicity or lack of toxicity from those, um, Botox injections, and then sexual performance enhancers. 
And it sounds like a great day. Unfortunately, I didn't get to make it to that day. It was a little too personal for me. Um, <laughs> too close to home. Too close to yeah. home. Yeah. Um, Were they giving out free samples of the sexual enhancers? I don't know, but there's always that table there. So there's always free stuff at these conferences. It's not cool stuff because it's a tox conference. You get like a pen or a Codalid card. But there's always that table of hand cream people, and I don't know why they're there. Yeah, I actually got talked into picking up a bottle of it for my wife, and it was a little awkward coming home and saying, here, honey, have some anti-aging cream. Yeah, I'm sure. It could have been worse. You could have come home with it. Something else from Vegas. Yeah, as most true. things like that should stay in Vegas. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And then the second day was antidotes and novel antidotes. And um, don't laugh. It's not funny. Um, oh, I like the fellows roundtable. So one of the good things about these conferences is you get to see other fellows practicing in different parts of the country and how they practice. And, you know, in some parts of the country, the medical toxicologists are mainly working at the Poison Control Center. In some parts of the country, they're affiliated with the hospital. Sometimes they're private groups. And just like anything, they have to have a revenue stream and they have to have a um, source of patients. And so it was really interesting, um, the candid responses that we got from uh, from all of the faculty present um, about how you set up a practice and essentially how you earn an income in talks. Because if you don't earn an income in talks, you're, you're mainly, I, I guess, um, you know, going to be stuck supplementing with night shifts and things like that, um, and to see some of the uh, open discussion of uh, poison control versus medical toxicologists and the role in managing poison patients. I don't know. The money, where the Benjamins are in tox. But yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think we're all, of course, love, we love helping people and all of that stuff, but we're not necessarily trying to have all of our patients under pro bono work. and. Um, being inexperienced in the uh, consulting services as coming from the emergency department. Um, it was interesting hearing the different ways people have their practices set up, whether it was inpatient services, whether they have admitting privileges or just strictly consultants. Uh, and then, of course, the partnership with pharmacists and poison control and whether or not to use said venues as a, a source of patients or not. I thought that was pretty interesting and informative, especially since I'm going to be looking for a job shortly. So, Yes, yes, I as well, as all of us. And it's a good place to network and stuff. Um, and free food. It's No, wait, there wasn't free food. No, there, there wasn't. Free food there. No free food there. So what was the consensus? Where are the Benjamins? I think it was a mix. So um, some people are doing uh, court case consulting, you know, for toxicologic exposures, um, uh, forensic work, um, alcohol and opiates are a big part of the forensic work. Some people are doing bedside consultations, which is a big thing. Um, some people are doing tox clinic. Our very own Sean Ree here does tox clinic and sees people with toxicologic exposures um, of varying validity. And... Um, some people are looking at uh, being the referral center for children with elevated lead levels, um, occupational toxicology in terms of working with a company or working with an occupational exposure, working with DEA and CDC, and that's always a big option too. Um, although I don't know, working with the government I think is an exciting opportunity. Um, I think the Benjamins can sometimes be limited. Is there anything? But it, it was a nice forum to to actually be able to speak with people from different places. You know, I'd, where I trained, we had a tox fellowship as well, but 
I didn't know anybody from the CDC or the FDA, FDA or any of those national groups. So it's interesting to get a perspective from um, someone that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to speak with. Yeah, totally. So that was fun. And then um, I really enjoyed, so on one of the days there was a discussion about hemodialysis and poisoned, pa poisoned patients. And so they've sort of established this international professional committee to review all the literature um, for uh, essentially extracorporeal elimination of, of uh, poisonings. And because right now the literature is not so great in tox, it's generally a case report or a case series. There's very few randomized control trials. And uh, so that was with uh, Mark, I'm going to mispronounce this, Ganum, and uh, Bob Hoffman uh, being a renal representative and Bob Hoffman being a toxicologist at New York. And essentially they took all of these uh, case reports, some of them were international, so they had them translated, and they looked to see whether or not there was benefit or not benefit and whether or not the toxicologists agreed that there was benefit or not benefit and then tried to come up with a recommendation for when you should dialyze somebody with lithium toxicity. Um, did you uh, did you go to those? Yeah, I think we were all fair, all there for that one. Um, yeah, I think it was it was great to hear um, Dr. Ganim and Dr. Hoffman talk about their their work, and it's been pretty extensive. It looks like, and I think a lot of it will be a good resource for people when they're trying to figure out how to treat something like lithium or whatever other medication overdoses. But despite all their work and looking at all these papers and having them translated and using a forum of experts, they still, even though they were able to give some recommendations at the end, um, the recommendations were still based on, I think at best, level 1D uh, evidence. So, Ooh, level <laughs> 1D. So the jury is still out and, uh, you know, some people may um, adhere to these uh guidelines, whereas others may um, still have some questions regarding whether or not the, the, um, whether the conclusions were justified. Yeah, well, and that's the interesting thing, too, because I feel like um, every field has a certain personality type in some respect, and in toxicology, if you don't have an opinion, you, you aren't at the table, you know, you might as well not be in the field. And I feel like having a slightly contrary opinion is highly respected. And there were numerous times at this conference where I would watch somebody talk about the last five years research they've been doing on a novel antidote or a novel treatment. And then somebody would stand up and start preface their question with, yeah, I, I don't think any of that really works, but, and then move on. And definitely with the, um, with the renal dialysis for lithium, there was some controversy as to whether or not the recommendations were valid or should have been made. Um, I think there's a big concern that garbage in, garbage out, and if you have poor studies, can you really make decent conclusions or recommendations based on that? The flip side to that, and one of the um, uh, responses I think that um, Bob Hoffman made kind of eloquently was that, you know, whether you've got data or not, at 3 a.m. you're getting called and somebody's going to ask for a recommendation and, and you're kind of shooting from the hip. And so the point of these guidelines isn't necessarily to mandate a treatment course, it's to provide some insight and some evidence. And I certainly haven't read the 16 French studies on dialyzing lithium, um, but they had. So I, I kind of appreciated that. I definitely, if, if anyone has access to the audio but hasn't sort of missed that segment, um, I would recommend checking it out. And it sounds like that sort of professional committee is going to continue to meet and give um, hopefully some consensus guidelines on dialysis with other poisonings. This was sort of their trial run. Yeah, and that was the X-Trip group. Yes. I don't know if we're allowed to say that. On yeah, oh yeah, X-Trip, yeah. I think we're allowed um, to. 
But yeah, I think I think that whole debate gets at the heart of where we are as a specialty. So much of toxicology is based on case reports, and at a certain level, that's that's all we're gonna get, at least for now. And you know, if the if the right data isn't out there, like randomized controlled trials, yes, it needs to be out there. But in the meantime, we still have to treat the patients. So I think it was a I think it was a very uh, good debate that everybody witnessed at NACCT. Yes, I would check out the audio. And then, um, did you guys uh, have any uh, special talks that you enjoyed, or any parts of it? The open bar at the welcome reception. Uh, with the s'mores martini. Yeah. Oh, that was different. That was the fellows' oh, reception. Right. Yeah. And what happens at the fellows' reception stays. stays at the fellows' reception. So I think we all reviewed a lot of the abstracts prior to going to the meeting. Uh, There's a lot of really interesting uh, cases, a lot, a lot of case reports, but um, let me just talk about a few that I thought were kind of interesting. Um, one of them was out of Rocky Mountain Poison Control, and this was entitled Prolonged Hypocalcemia Refractory to Calcium Gluconate Following Ammonium Bifluoride Ingestion. So this was kind of interesting. That's um, a really sexy title. Yeah, yeah. Um, this was kind of interesting, though, because of the prolonged um, hypocalcemia, uh, which you don't or ordinarily see. Um, so, well, I feel like that's what a lot. So that's what a lot of the posters end up being. Like it's, it's kind of like our field. Some of the posters are hypothesis-driven and stuff. Some of them are. This is a novel thing. Look at this really cool exposure. And then you go, yep, that's, that's, oh, hypocalcemia, that's really cool. But beyond that, we don't always say a lot. There was one really interesting poster, the novel exposure. Uh, there were a handful of people who were transported to the emergency department after ingesting some sort of dessert item. Oh, yeah, the dessert item one here, just a moment. <laughs> so, yeah, that was one of my favorite abstracts. There's always an abstract at the conference that everyone kind of refers to or giggles at or enjoys. Last year it was um, uh, death from rectal uh, enema with wine. Um, there was also, uh, you know, DEET toxicity in a nudist is Ed's favorite. Um, I don't know if he likes the DEET or the nudist part of it. Uh, and this one, there was a case report of, um, I think it was a dozen or so people who worked at a, a, I think it was a healthcare facility, who all had some brownies that were made by somebody's son. And very shortly thereafter, they started to feel funny, and there was inappropriate giggling and kind <laughs> of um, some elation and euphoria, and they went to um, the local hospital, this was in Texas, and it was found that the pot brownies all contained synthetic cannabinoids. And they actually sent it out and, and found the synthetic cannabinoid, identified it. And uh, within six hours, everyone was fine. They did supportive care. I don't know if, if anyone planned on tripping at work um, or, or sort of getting high at work that day, but it was sort of a funny, funny poster. And that's a perfect example. Um, it is the first case report of food uh, ingested with synthetic cannabinoid exposure. I don't know that it's that shocking, but it's sort of fun fun to read. And after talking about it, it seems like a number of people know someone who accidentally ate a pot brownie or something and um, were affected. Yeah, a lot of anecdotal reports. And actually, that kind of reminds me of another one of the abstracts they had um, talking about medical marijuana in Colorado, also from Den uh, Denver. Interesting. But um, they were reporting increased... Uh, childhood cases of marijuana toxicity 
um, as they uh, decreased, I guess, the the legislation against medical marijuana so that people could have more of it. And uh, a lot of those cases of toxicity seem to have been from, like, the medical marijuana brownies or space cakes or whatever they sell at the head shops. Um, space cakes. Oh, I've never been to Amsterdam. They're popular in Amsterdam. Space cakes. <laughs> Are they? Okay. Yeah, that was a fun one. And then, um, but a, a more serious one, actually, there was a, there was a abstract, um, uh, out of the radar system, which is out of Rocky Mountain. And it's sort of a, um, uh, monitoring system for exposures to Oxycontin. And this is relevant because, so, um, Recently, back in uh, August of 2010, they changed the way that OxyContin was was packaged. And before that, OxyContin was supposed to be safe and non-addictive because it's a prolonged release formulation. And uh, so because it's so long, nobody would use it to get high. But if you just ground it up and either snorted it or injected it, you could overcome the controlled release aspect of it. And so they made it sort of a jelly formulation where if you crush it or try to grind it, it's all jelly and you can't really inject it or insufflate it. And so this article looked at whether or not that reform formulation changed abuse of OxyContin. And what they found was that overall the abuse rates for OxyContin declined since they introduced the reformulated product, but so did the use of OxyContin. Um, and so I don't know that that's an obvious clear marker that um, that re the reformulation has necessarily made it safer. It just seems like people are using other things that people are using other things. And then that made me actually ask, so after they introduced it, what happened? And there's um, there's a nice uh, correspondence in the July 2012 uh, New England Journal, Effects of Abuse uh, Deterrent Formulation of OxyContin. And that's um, from, uh, looks like Cicero and Ellis and Surratt. And they uh, surveyed uh, patients that were entering um, opioid dependence treatment for what they were using. And what they found is that Yes, indeed, fewer people were using um, OxyContin, uh, but uh, there was a corresponding increase in other opioids, including um, heroin. So in terms of a public health intervention, yeah, it's great that people aren't shooting up their OxyContin, but I don't know that I feel better about them using heroin instead. But I just thought that was a really well-done um, correspondence. That wasn't at the conference, but it kind of mirrors the um, abstract. And that, that Radar's abstract was by... Uh, was by Brown, Siebertson, and of course uh, Dart. Now, I, I also like there was a fun one. I think we all enjoyed reading that was variation in suicide occurrence by day and major American holiday. And they essentially, this is by um, oh I don't have the authors here, but um, it was a retrospective review of the Poison Control Center data to look at when people overdose, and um, we all tried to predict what day of the week and what holidays people would overdose on, and um, what it, uh, what it, I think we decided, I think we kind of agreed. So Sundays and Mondays tend to be the busy days, an average of uh, 617 or 614 overdoses a day um, in comparison to the other days of the week, um, except for kids. They overdose on Mondays and Tuesdays. And then Fridays were the least common. So I think that if you can get to Friday, it's it's a good thing, you know, because you got that weekend. And then when you have to go back to work, that's when you're going to overdose. Um, and then for holidays, uh, New Year's was the highest number of exposures, and uh, often Christmas is a sort of a low exposure. And anecdotally, somebody said that Christmas is sort of not a busy time for the Poison Center. And when you say exposure, do you mean exposure to deadly... So it, to deadly poisons. Poisons. Um, so that was uh, essentially they looked for uh, intentional uh, suicide 
exposures. So when they, when you call the poison center and they document how is the exposure, was it intentional or unintentional, was it an attempt to self-harm? What about patients who are using non-pharmacologic methods for suicide, such as a gun or hanging? So that's an excellent, excellent, excellent question. Um, because this is in the poison center, it's only um, essentially tox exposures. Um, but there are other studies that seem to validate those findings that are looking at emergency department visits for suicide and self-harm. And those studies generally include um, sort of uh, uh, traumatic means of, of death. And uh, I also, in terms of the conference, I sort of really enjoyed the Barry Rumack talk. Did you guys go to that? That was a great talk. It was really interesting listening to him talk about the history of Tylenol and how, um, basically how he became the expert. Um, I enjoyed also, one of my favorite things about that talk, though, was, so it was Barry Rumack, and it was the Career Achievement Award from AACT, and if anyone deserves it, it's Barry Rumack. Um, and first of all, I like that he educated that it's not, that it's not acetaminophen, it's acetaminophen. Um, and actually, multiple points after that conference, I heard people refer to it as acetaminophen. So we are nothing if not, I guess, parrots. And um, then when he talked about how he how they essentially came up with uh, giving NAC and dosing NAC and how to give it, for um, those of you who are unfamiliar with it, so um, Barry Rumack, one of the fathers, along with uh, Matthews, of uh, giving NAC and acetylcysteine for Tylenol overdose and sort of coming up with the threshold for when to treat. Um, initially looking at a, a threshold four-hour level of 300 and then dropping it to 200 because they missed a couple of cases. Those of you who are in the U.S. where we treat at 150, that's because the FDA really doesn't trust people. And uh, so we dropped it by 25% sort of arbitrarily to a safety level of 150. So that being said, I mean, that's one of those things where all the time people say, oh, well, I have a Tylenol level at four hours of 145, but that's close to the cutoff, so I should treat. And you go, well, no, it's, it's a 25% safety threshold in there. Not that we are providing medical advice on this program. Um, and then Rumat kind of admitted that some of his calculations were not made up, but they were based on assumptions. You know, we assumed that we would need this ratio of this to um, to sort of uh, divert napki formation, and we assumed that we would need this much as a glutathione uh, donor and this much for N-acetylcysteine, and uh, this is how we came up with the dosage. And when you talk to people nowadays about N-acetylcysteine dosing, I mean, a lot of them have religion. You know, this is how much we give, and this is how long we give it, and this is how much. Um, and he sort of admitted that it, it came from somewhere and there were some assumptions. And I think that this is what happens in medicine. It's a bunch of people who are having to figure something out. And when you're one of the first people, you kind of have to do some guesstimation. And then it becomes lore. Didn't he also mention something about um, a lot of these calculations were done on a napkin at a pub one Friday night? Uh, yes, yes. I think that napkin will sell for millions of dollars um, someday in the talk at the next talks conference, maybe, to raise money for victims of acetaminophen <laughs> toxicity. <laughs> the pub napkin. <laughs> Neck awareness. Yeah, I think there's actually a phone number written on the other side of that napkin. For a good time call. Yes. Talk. And my, one of my favorite things, too, is then watching people still, it's a toxicology conference, so people getting up and say, you know, Barry, this is how I treat acetaminophen toxicity. Acetaminophen. Sorry, acetaminophen toxicity. And because it's just, it's just that same thing, you know, toxicologists, you have to have an opinion. And it's fun. It's a small world, so it's nice to see these people who have known each other for years who can kind of give each other trouble. Maybe someday there will be a, a carry nomogram for something. Seroquel toxicity. Yeah, I hope so. Oh, Mark, you were in the last ones. You saw the Ellen Horn talk. That was the... Yeah, that was so the Ellen Horn Award um, was awarded to Bob Hoffman this year. Um, so he gave a really great talk. Uh, kind of a little bio on Bob Hoffman. He sort of described 
where he came from and uh, the unlikely path into toxicology. Um, and he had a little bit of shout out to the Ramones, which was kind of cool. Um, but he, I wouldn't have thought of him as a Ramones fan. No, no. 2020, 20, 24 hours ago. But um, his talk was mainly about uh, cocaine and the his that. experience with it, or his experience. Yeah, it was just like it. a personal. Was this like a, a was this a case report about um, a toxicologist in New York? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah a autobiographical <laughs> case report. No, I don't think so. But I, it it went through the series of events that led to an area of research for him, and I I thought it was pretty cool as a young budding toxicologist to see how um, an established member of the field has made a name for himself and um, the kind of process he went through um, in researching cocaine in New York City and how that developed into something bigger. So I would say it was it was pretty inspirational as a young toxicologist. Did you raise your, your arm up proud at the end of his talk in, in Unity? <laughs> no. I, I, no, I lit a lighter, actually, because he went into a Jerry Garcia song at the end of it. Really? Did no, he? No, no, he didn't. That would have been great. That would have been great. Um, yeah, no, I agree. Are you saying you're budding? Is it, did, did you just <laughs> you did say that? He's yeah. budding. Yeah. Isn't that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> He's a budding task. So, so you'll see, you know him now, so give it, give it 20 years. 20 years, the Ellenhorn will be going to Mark Nevin and Jen Carey <laughs> for their groundbreaking work. On, um, I, I don't know what you guys are going to do. Um, it's top secret. It's top, it's top yeah, secret. It's, it's top secret. It's a big project. Absolutely. I hear that you guys are the source for the synthetic cannabinoids and bath salts. Um, well, we have a, we do have a ring here in Worcester. Very nice. Um, yeah. So, no, I really enjoyed the conference. I had a good time with it. Um, and then uh, it's a, the other fun thing about these conferences to go to some of the business meetings and see how, how some of these organizations work. And it's nice also, I should say, because NACCT is an interdisciplinary conference. So there's multiple organizations there. There's um, American Association of Clinical um, Toxicology and Medical Toxicology. Um, there's, uh, uh, I think, uh, applied toxicologists there also. And um, we all have slightly different training and backgrounds. And so you say the word toxicologist and it can mean a lot of different things. Um, and then it's fun because you get to talk about the next conferences. So I'm looking forward to the next conference in Puerto Rico, where I hope that we get some sun and and maybe um, maybe less gambling. There was sun in Las Vegas and heat too. There was heat, yeah. Um, I know. I think somebody actually went for a run. <laughs> yeah, that was a mistake. I got off the plane and saw sunlight, so I thought it would be a great idea to go for a run at two thirty in the afternoon in a. 100 degree weather. I believe it was only 97 that day. 97. It was a dry heat. It's a dry it's heat. It's a dry heat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You got pretty far, though. I was impressed. I would not have done that. Yeah. Yeah. I was peeing brown for the next few days, and that's okay. That's good to know. A little know. rhabdo never hurt anybody. A little rhabdo. He drank some bicarb, orally administered bicarb. Yeah. So what Puerto Rico, I think, will be a great time with beautiful beaches. And then next year, um, Atlanta. So the spring meeting is in Puerto Rico, and then next year's NACCT is Hot in Atlanta. Atlanta. Hot Atlanta. And um, we're coming up with some ideas. I was at the meeting where they're determining who the speakers are going to be and what the topics are going to be. So this is where it's at. If you liked what you heard, you should definitely 
come to one of the conferences. I find it's a, it's a small world of toxicologists and it's always good to see what's going on. If you missed the conference, I would definitely check out the audio that's available if you um, signed up for it. Um, or if you know a toxicologist, you possibly maybe could semi-legally download it. I think there's a big Napster and BitTorrent, you know, black market on uh, ACMT and uh, NACCT audio. Popular item among the uh, youth, you know. There should have been more free food. Although... The they had some good free snacks. The, the coffee shots, whatever these, those were I was stealing for you. Yeah. The, you were not stealing. I, I was, yeah. Good point. I was just taking multiple... Yes. Cans. I, you would take one, and I would take one, and then you would take one, I would take... Look, the, the hotel mini bar was like $8 for a soda. The hotel mini bar, which still charged me for the soda, even though I did not drink the soda. I'm actually really surprised that the Cosmopolitan didn't have some cocktail waitresses walking through the conference and offering, you know, gin and tonics and... Maybe that's something you could suggest for the next conference. Yeah, I, th- I think it would make the commentary during these lectures a lot more interesting. And, oh, yeah, because yeah. people were kind of reserved. Imagine if they got up there and they had had a few before they challenged yeah. the life work of uh, the toxicologist. Yeah. Yeah, there might be some slights against, you know, personal family and stuff. Oh, and the CPCs, actually. I loved the CPCs. Yeah, there was a lot of really good cases. And actually really good um, attending presentations as well, I thought. Yeah, so for those of you who are unfamiliar, the CPC is essentially, um, it's a, it's a competition where, uh, fellows present sort of mysterious cases, and then, um, attending toxicologists, often from other institutions, have to come up with the solution with the limited piece of information they have. And it's, it's one of my favorite segments, and emergency medicine conferences often do this too, but it's one of my favorite segments because you get into the mind of a toxicologist. And they really were talented, um, just for a moment. Just a shout out to, um, those people. Dorian Jacobs, Jenny Liu, Michael Nelson. Michael Schwartz was um, actually one of the uh, faculty winners. He did a great job. John Devlin and uh, and uh, David uh, Verrier and uh, yeah, did you you guys were there, right? Yeah, I think we were all there. Um, it was pretty good. I I thought the cases were really interesting. Um, There's some interesting approaches on how to handle the case, like if if you neglect to give the person a potassium level. You can be sh- sure that that could possibly have been the poison. Oh, that, yeah, that was hysteric. Was that, um, uh, I think that was uh, uh, Schwartz. But, like, yeah, the, the case was um, somebody came in with a wide, complex rhythm. Yeah, tachydysrhythmia. And part of the deduction was that, oh, you did not give me the potassium level. That you didn't give me anything. You told me yeah. nothing. That was a good case because yeah. it's one of those things you don't think about, even though it's, you know, hyperkalemia is something you learn as an intern, how to treat, but... Yeah, and that was also, I think, everyone's one of everyone's favorite presentation was uh, the guy who found some stuff in a jar in an old barn. <laughs> yeah, and that was it. tricky. That was a tricky case. I think a lot of people had different thoughts on what it could be. But what was it again? What did he do? Nitromethane. But what did he... It wasn't just him. He put fruit in the yes. jar and decided to serve it at a barbecue or party or something. Interesting. Yeah. So there are multiple exposures, but I mean, why wouldn't you put fruit in a jar of stuff you found in a barn from 50 years ago and, and drink it? it? And it, it layered out. It layered out. I don't know that I would drink something that layers out. Yeah, it didn't look right. It did not look right at all. I would not have drunk that. I bet it was delicious. 
<laughs> you would. You would. Yeah. But after, yeah. After $12 beers in Vegas, you're like, if I find something in a jar, I would drink it. Um, and yeah, so yeah, it ended up being the, um, nitromethane. Yeah. yeah. And I love it because afterwards, a number of toxicologists were like, I knew it was nitromethane. <laughs> thinking, okay, wow, either you are a genius or you cannot admit when you do not know something. Um, yeah, no, so that was fun. And you guys are going to be there at the at the Puerto Rico conference, and hopefully other people will be there. Um, I want to thank you both for joining me today. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Inappropriate giggling. Jen, what's, what's in that brownie you're eating? Um, and with that thought, uh, that's another segment of Talk Stock. concludes this episode of Talks Talk. I want to thank you for joining me. Once again, Talks Talk is a toxicology podcast from the UMass Division of Toxicology. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter and get more information about our episodes at our website. That's TalksTalk.org, T-O-X-T-A-L-K.org. If there's any particular topics you'd like to hear us talk about, just drop a line uh, by going to our website or emailing us at Talks Talk at TalksTalk.org. This is Matt Zuckerman signing off.